King David, arguably one of the most successful leaders in the history of the world, and certainly in biblical history, <clears throat> once wrote these now famous words that we just saw on the screen. He said, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Psalm 139, 7 through 12. In other words, no matter where I go, no matter what happens to me, no matter what this world may ever do to me, if you're a child of God, then he is always, always, always with you. And the reason that passage of Scripture gives us so much comfort is not because life is always good, right? If life was always, if life was always good, we wouldn't need that passage of Scripture. Now, the reason those verses are so meaningful to us is because sometimes life is anything but good. In fact, I'm sure everyone here knows all too well that suffering in one form or another is an inevitable part of living. The, the truth is, uh, there's no version of life on this planet that does not involve some form of suffering at points along the way. And although we often have no control over whether or not we experience suffering, we always have control over how we respond to that suffering. And I believe the single greatest determining factor in how we respond to suffering is the degree to which we understand the purpose of that suffering to begin with. There are, uh, there are countless studies that show the correlation between a worker's productivity and the degree to which they feel a sense of purpose in that work. In other words, the more purpose a worker is able to identify in his work, the more productive he will be in that work. In fact, the uh, the Harvard Business Review reported in 2018 that 9 out of 10 people are willing to earn less money to do more meaningful work. Okay, it's, it's been proven time and again that people are far more likely to work productively and purposefully when they understand what it is they're working for, right? So if, uh, if you tell your child to do something just because I said so, that child may do what, what you've told him or her to do simply out of obedience, which is good. But look, when you actually take the time to explain the reason that work is important, they, they still may not like it, but when they understand why it matters, they will do what you've told them to do with a sense of purpose. And listen, it's the exact same with suffering because suffering is something we have to work through. And yet if you cannot see the purpose in that suffering to begin with, then you're far more likely to look for ways to simply escape it than you are to look for ways to work through it. And the, the problem with that is that suffering is meant to be something we work through. That's why God allows it in our lives, not simply to escape it, but to learn from it and to grow in it in order to accomplish His will as we work through it. But listen... Uh, you're not likely to do any of that if you don't recognize the purpose of that suffering to begin with. Pastor and author Paul Chappelle once wrote, often we endure trials seeking God's deliverance from them. Suffering is painful for us to endure or to see those we love endure. While our instinct is to flee trials, remember that even in the midst of suffering, 
God's will is being done. So look, God created you for this moment in history. I was just telling someone this the other day. God put you on this earth right now for a very specific reason, for a great purpose, in fact, which means there is something for you to do right now. It can't wait. If it could, he would have put you here at some other time, but he didn't. He put you here now for a great purpose, and everything that he allows in your life, including your suffering, is meant to further that purpose in your life. And so we'd all best get on with whatever that purpose is, because in light of eternity, his will being done on this earth is the only thing we will ever do that will last. And yet we cannot do what he's called us to do. Now, listen to me now, because I know this isn't what you want to hear. The truth is it isn't, it isn't what I want to hear either, but it's the truth. You cannot accomplish God's will for your life on this earth without suffering. We're going to see that in our story today as we begin a new sermon series working our way through the book of Ruth. We're going to see how suffering as unpleasant, as hopeless and unending as it can seem at times in our lives. We're going to see how necessary it is to accomplishing his purpose in your life. And I'm telling you, once you begin to recognize God's purpose in your suffering, you will view suffering in a whole new way, actually a paradigm-shattering way, a way that will dramatically change you forever. So let's turn there now together to the book of Ruth. We'll begin reading it together at chapter 1, and we'll start with the first five verses. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites, Ephrathites excuse me, from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband." So the story is set in the time when the judges ruled, according to verse 1, which was between 1200 and about 1020 B.C., or during the time between Joshua's death in Judges 1 and the coronation of Saul as the nation's first king in 1 Samuel 10, which was uh, a notably dreadful time in Israel's history. It was fraught with violent and bloody battles, uh, tribal civil war, unbridled lawlessness, apostate religion, in short, during the time of Ruth, Israel was in utter chaos, both socially and religiously. And as a result, the nation was under a severe famine as the rains that were so critical to the growing season hadn't fallen on the land probably for several years at this point. Again, as a result of the rampant rebellion against God and his word by his people, which they were put on notice for in the covenantal curses in both Leviticus 26, 14 through 20, and Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 24, which both offer very clear warnings to God's people that if they insist on going after other gods and rebelling against Yahweh, the Lord would not only send enemies of Israel to destroy their crops and occupy their land, as we see throughout the book of Judges, 
but also that he would cut off the much needed rains and therefore bring a great famine on the land, which is exactly what's happening at this point in history. And so as the story opens, the only thing to be found in abundance in Israel is suffering. And under those dreadful circumstances, one Israelite man and his family decide to travel across the Jordan to go and live for a time, presumably until the famine in Israel subsides in the country of Moab, which is literally translated, that phrase, country of Moab, is literally translated from the ancient Hebrew as the fields of Moab, which was the mountainous region east of the Dead Sea. Uh, it, it was a fertile plateau about 25 miles wide along the sea's eastern shore and several thousand feet above the sea. And although Moab was historically an enemy of Israel, desperate times called for desperate measures, right? So Elimelech and his family were starving and Moab was a land of abundance. In fact, uh, from the archaeological excavations of Dibon, that's the ancient capital of the Moabite king Mesha, evidence was found of a highly organized agricultural production, including massive quantities. They found massive quantities of stored wheat that had been carbonized over thousands of years. And one of the researchers from the mid-20th century, William Reed, said that, and I'm quoting, he said, it is of interest that during excavations, families journeyed from Bethlehem to Moab for the purpose of working in the wheat and barley harvest in the still fertile plain adjacent to the Moabite capital. Again, that was mid-20th century. And in fact, wheat is still uh, cultivated in that area by Bedouin shepherds today. The, the point being, this was clearly the hand of God at work as the land of all of Israel is under a great famine while across the river, Moab is a land of plenty. And here's where the story really starts to get interesting because after they get to Moab, again, a land not historically friendly to the Hebrews, Naomi's husband dies, but at least she has two sons to protect and care for her. As verse 4 says, these, meaning these two sons, took Moabite wives. And interestingly, when it says they took their wives, that phrase when translated from the ancient Hebrew literally means they lifted up or carried away these women. And in other places in Scripture, such as in Judges, which again was the same time period as this story of Ruth, when that same phrase is used to refer to marriage, it's referring to marriage by abduction, such as Judges 21-23, where the Benjamites, uh, Benjaminites forcibly seized the dancers at Shiloh and took them as their wives. And so, uh, so the plot thickens. As 10 years later, these two brothers have now died, leaving nothing more than a broken down remnant of what has been up to this point a highly dysfunctional family. First of all, the father, Elimelech, leads his family into pagan enemy territory. The, the Moabites are the result of Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughter in Genesis 19:30 through 38, and they've been nothing but trouble for the Israelites ever since. They resisted the Israelite passage through their territory when they came out of Egypt in Numbers 22 through 24. Their women seduced the Israelites who were punished because of it in Numbers 25, 1 through 9. And ultimately, Israel excluded Moab from the assembly of the Lord in Deuteronomy 23, 3 through 6. And then, of course, the most recent oppression of the Israelites by Eglon, the king of Moab, in Judges 3, 15 through 30. Okay, Elimelech, could have and should have led his family in just about any other direction than Moab. 
but he chose Moab anyway in rebellion to the Lord. And then he dies. And as referenced in Amos 7:17, to be buried in an unclean foreign land was considered the ultimate punishment for rebelling against God. And then Naomi's two sons, who'd abducted their wives in direct rebellion against the Mosaic law in Deuteronomy 7, 3 through 4, right? They forcibly take pagan wives in a pagan land, which Naomi did nothing to stop, the result of which is 10 years of marriage and 10 years of barrenness for both of these women, which was also described as God's judgment for being disobedient to his law in Deuteronomy 28, 18. And then the sons both die buried in a foreign land, a pagan land like their father, leaving their Hebrew mother and two Moabite wives, husbandless, childless, without any form of protection, provision, or honor, or hope. Okay? This family is a dumpster fire. It's a complete train wreck. Just about every decision they've made has been the wrong one. In fact, the only members of this family who haven't consistently made bad choices are the sisters Ruth and Orpah. And even that is about to change, as we'll see in a moment, uh, as uh, Orpah abandons the family, choosing to go back to her pagan roots instead of following Naomi, who's about to make the first really good major decision of her life, okay? They're suffering is almost unimaginable at this point, but it's gone from bad to worse. In fact, Ruth is the poster child for suffering at this point in the story. Everything she's been through, and now any future she could ever hope for, seems utterly out of reach. And, and I'll just tell you, we could probably spend all day talking about the reasons why this family, uh, or any of us for that matter, experience suffering, okay? Sometimes it's because of our own sin in our life. Sometimes it's because of other people's sin in our lives. And yet sometimes we suffer simply because we live in a fallen world. The truth is there are many reasons why we suffer, but that's not really what this story is about. That's another discussion for another day. This isn't about why we suffer. It's about what God's purpose is in our suffering, no matter what caused it, because we all suffer at times, right? For all different kinds of reasons. But regardless of the reason, your suffering is meant to further God's plan for your life every single time. Suffering always serves a purpose. And a big part of that purpose is to further his plan for your life. But, but this is where we get it all wrong. We think our suffering is keeping us from doing what God has called us to do when actually our suffering enables us to do what God has called us to do. You understand your suffering is meant to further God's plan for your life, not stop it. And listen, once you begin to recognize that God is using your suffering to move you further into his plan for your life, you will not only learn to work through it, but as crazy as it sounds, you will actually begin to appreciate it for what it is. You may not enjoy it, but you will thank him for it. You will rejoice in it as hard as it may be because of what it is accomplishing in you and through you, which is precisely why James, the brother of Jesus, was able to say, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, James 1, 2 through 4. Can you see the process 
James says that suffering produces steadfastness in us. And when steadfastness has worked its full effect in our lives, we're made complete, lacking in nothing. But, but listen, that only happens. That only comes by way of suffering. The Apostle Paul said, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who's been given to us. Romans 3, 5, uh, 5 3 through 5. Can you see the process that Paul talks about, the process that suffering initiates in our lives? Paul says that suffering produces endurance. By the way, that word endurance in the ancient Greek, hupomane, is the exact same Greek word that James uses when he says that trials and the testing of your faith produce steadfastness. Hupomane, it's the exact same word. See, James and Paul are saying the exact same thing. Suffering initiates a process in our lives, a process that if we're willing to work through it instead of running from it, that process will prepare us for the next chapter of God's plan in our lives by producing endurance and character and hope that we need to accomplish that next chapter of God's plan in our lives. And yet it only comes through suffering. There is no other way. You see, as difficult as suffering can be, it is actually a necessary and highly valuable component of the Christian life. In the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we have to learn that personal suffering is a more effective key, a more rewarding principle for exploring the world in thought and action than personal good fortune. Charles Spurgeon, who was a little bit more blunt, said it this way, I'm certain that I never did grow in grace one half so much anywhere as I have upon the bed of pain. We all suffer at times in our lives. We all know that. That much we cannot control. But how we respond to that suffering, well, that is up to us. You can let it stop you dead in your tracks, or you can work through it, allowing it to take its full effect producing in you everything you will need to carry out the next chapter of his plan for your life because the last thing suffering is meant to do is to stop you from carrying out God's plan for your life. As the apostle Peter says so clearly, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. First Peter 4.19, you see, even when suffering... We're called to carry out God's plan for our lives. And listen, all you have to do is read a little history and you will quickly see that those who have accomplished the most for the cause of Christ in this world are those who have suffered the most at the hands of this world. It's a fact. Those who have accomplished the most for the cause of Christ in this world are those who have suffered the most at the hands of this world, which is why Bonhoeffer said we must learn to regard people less in the light of what they do or omit to do and more in the light of what they suffer. Because suffering is what produces in us exactly what we need to do what he's called us to do. It's also why we're called to sacrifice everything. When we, uh, when we follow Jesus, we talked about that last week, not because we earn our way into his plan for our lives by sacrifice, no, but because the suffering of sacrifice, which is suffering, that enables us to carry out his plan for our lives. 
after naming everything that the Apostle Paul had accomplished in his storied career as a Pharisee, a leader and enforcer of the law and his pedigree as a religious Jew, he said, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In other words, I've suffered through sacrifice, giving up everything dear to me, and I consider it all rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. God's plan for his life, Philippians 3.8. Suffering in Scripture, although difficult, for the Christian, suffering was always assigned a high value. That's why the Apostle Peter said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed, 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. There's no way around this. As difficult as it may be, suffering is a highly valuable and necessary component of the Christian life because it enables us to carry out his plan for our lives, which means we should not only expect it, but even rejoice in it for what it produces in us. Martin Luther once said, they gave our master a crown of thorns. Why do we hope for a crown of roses? Let's keep reading verses 6 through 18. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. That's back in Israel and Judah. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband, then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No. My daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. She said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So in the face of great calamity, in what was legitimately a life or death situation, Naomi presumably does what she thinks is best by telling her daughters-in-law to go back home to their people their lands, and their gods, while she returns to Judah as she has heard that the famine has ended for the Israelites, which is, among other things, an indicator actually of Naomi's lack of relationship with the one true God because she's assigning more confidence in the pagan people and the pagan gods of Moab to care for these young women than she is her own God and her own people. 
Once again, it shines a spotlight not only on her husband and son's lack of relationship with Yahweh, but Naomi's lack of relationship with him as well. And given uh, Orpah and even Ruth's response to Naomi's plea, it's clear that in their 10 years with this family, they haven't learned the first thing from them about the God of the Hebrews either. There doesn't seem to be any sense at all that just maybe God has a purpose in their suffering that is ultimately intended for their good, which again, Naomi seems to have zero awareness of. As she says, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me when actually he's saving her, right? So she has no awareness in her suffering at all. Listen, as many of us don't either, that your suffering is meant to draw you closer to God and his people, not further away. And yet one of the first things that many of us do when we experience suffering is we act just like Naomi. We may not say it as openly as she did, but we act like God is against us and we alienate ourselves from his people. Naomi was convinced that God had turned against her and her response was to push the only family she had left away from her. And, and we so often do the very same thing. When we suffer, we act like we don't understand why God doesn't care about us anymore, like he's somehow abandoned us and we become bitter just as she did. And eventually we distance ourselves from the church, from his people, or we respond like Orpah did. We run back to the world for answers and for comfort and leave God's people behind. But not Ruth. Something was shifting in Ruth. And we'll see in the weeks to come that it was God changing her through the process of suffering to the point that it didn't matter how much Naomi protested or how much it must have hurt watching Orpah leave or how much the Israelites might reject her for being a Moabite in their land. Ruth was determined to go to Israel with Naomi. Bible scholar Ian Dugwood said, Ruth was a nobody, an outsider, a Moabite of all things. There was nothing kosher about Ruth. She knew she would be about as welcome in Bethlehem as a ham sandwich at a bar mitzvah. Conventional, <laughs> conventional wisdom shouted for Ruth to follow the way of Orpah, the most likely way of worldly security and significance. But Ruth was not Orpah, and there was nothing conventional about her. You see, unlike Orpah, Ruth knew that what was happening to her was bigger than just her. And although she didn't fully understand it yet, God was drawing her to himself and to his people through her suffering, which is exactly what he does with his people today. And listen, we get to choose just like these two women did. We can choose to be like Orpah and put our trust in this world and walk away from God and his people when we suffer. Or we can choose to be like Ruth and cling to God and his people when we suffer. And make no mistake about it, whatever you choose, that will determine your future, right? How many people remember Orpah? Who talks about the story of Orpah? No one, because she's been forgotten, right? How many women do you know named Orpah? I haven't, I haven't met one yet, but Ruth, everyone knows who Ruth is. Her name happens to be, by the way, one of the most popular female names of all time because of Ruth in the Bible. I know because I looked it up for good measure. 
So how did this pagan girl with no husband, no children, no future end up having such a profound impact on this world? Her background was the same as Orpah. Her pedigree was the same as Orpah. In fact, there's credible evidence that these two may have been sisters. Ruth's opportunities were the same as Orpah's. Her suffering was the same as Orpah's. And her offer from Naomi was the same as Orpah's. You understand the only difference between them is the fact that while Orpah used her suffering as an excuse to run away from God and his people, Ruth used her suffering as motivation to run toward God and his people. And the difference in outcome could not be more dramatic, as we'll see as this story unfolds in the weeks to come, okay? The last thing you need to do in your suffering, the last thing you need to do is put more distance between you and God and His people. Because I'm telling you, He's trying to close the gap between you and Him and His people. And one of the ways that He does that is through suffering. C.S. Lewis once said, everyone has noticed how hard it is to turn our thoughts to God when everything is going well with us. While what we call our own life remains agreeable, we will not surrender it to Him. What then can God do in our interests but make our own life less agreeable to us and take away the plausible sources of false happiness? You understand there's great purpose in every single moment of your suffering. Don't waste it because it is a God-given purpose meant to draw you to Him and to His people, which means when life gets hard, when your circumstances seem to turn against you, when nothing seems to be going the way it should, when there's conflict and strife in your family and your relationships, when your body is hurting, your heart is broken, or your mind and emotions are afflicted, whatever it is, when you're suffering, don't isolate yourself. Don't distance yourself from the very thing He's allowing you to suffer for. A deeper relationship with Him and His church, which is also how you work through your suffering. Never alone, but in His presence with His people. Okay, look. Every time there was suffering in Paul's life, in Peter's life, in one of the other disciples in Scripture, the church gathered together. They rallied together and prayed and provided resources to the one who was suffering. They cared for Paul while he was in prison. Others went and stayed with him. No one was left alone in their suffering. When Peter was in prison, they gathered together and bombarded heaven with prayer on Peter's behalf. When Jerusalem was under famine, great suffering, the other local churches gathered together and pulled their resources to comfort and aid the church at Jerusalem. They didn't abandon each other or pull back when one was suffering. And yet, in listen, in this hyper-individualistic culture that we live in, where we pride ourselves on being independent and self-made, we want everything to be private. We don't want other people to see us at our lowest. We don't want people to know that we're weak, confused, hurting, lacking in any way. So what do we do when we suffer? We tend to pull back. We draw ourselves away from the church, at least emotionally and sometimes even physically. We draw ourselves away from God's people so we can try and process our suffering in private. And I'm telling you, that is not God's way. No, His way is to allow us to work through suffering together. Why? 
to draw us closer to him and closer to one another. Bible scholar Timothy Keller once said, you don't really know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 19 to the end of the chapter. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So Naomi returns to her hometown with Ruth in tow. And just to be clear, this is not what Naomi wanted. After Ruth's impassioned plea to go with Naomi, verse 18 says, And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. When you translate that literally from the Hebrew, it says when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her. There was no thank you. There was no, I'm so relieved. There was no, I'm so glad you chose to come with me. Nothing of the sort. She simply stopped talking to Ruth altogether. Okay, make no mistake about it. This was not a joyous moment for Naomi. She was not happy to have Ruth with her at this point, who Naomi sees as a foreign girl, widowed, barren, an enemy of her people, and now without any source of provision, just one more mouth to feed. Again, Ian Dugwood says, having listened to one of the most emotionally moving speeches in the whole Bible, in which Ruth pledged herself completely to Naomi, she could make no response other than a hard silence. In her state of bitterness, she had nothing to say to this unwanted outpouring. Of course, Naomi's state of mind is confirmed. The moment they enter the town as the women who rushed out to see her greet her. Notice, notice they don't inquire at all about the Moabite girl standing right there next to her. They simply call on Naomi, to which she responds, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. How do you think that made Ruth feel? I went away full, and here I am, empty. That must have made Ruth feel pretty special, right? Of course not. What a terrible thing to say with this young girl standing right there with her. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. And just in case you have any questions left about Naomi's current state of mind, the name Mara that she's insisting on everyone calling her now literally means bitter. Okay? At this point, Ruth is the poster child for suffering. One moment living in her homeland, a land of plenty, the next she's abducted by a foreigner, forced into marriage, and for a decade she lives in this dysfunctional family. She's barren, seemingly unable to have children, which was one of the worst calamities that could befall a woman in antiquity. Then her husband dies along with the rest of the men in the family. Her sister abandons her. She pours out her love and devotion and commitment to her mother-in-law, the only thing she has left in this world, who doesn't even want her around. And now she's living in a foreign land where the residents not only don't want her around, but they don't even recognize her existence at all. If anyone has a right to be bitter in this story, 
It's Ruth. And yet she seems to understand somehow that her life isn't just about her. And in the weeks to come, we'll see. We're going to see her incredible character, integrity, and humble spirit shine like a beacon of light to everyone around her. I'm telling you, Ruth is an unbelievable blessing to everyone she meets. But listen, she's not an unbelievable blessing to everyone she meets because her life is good. Are you kidding me? Up to this point, Ruth's life has been one major disaster after another. And yet every single person she encounters becomes a better person because of her. More specifically, because of what God is doing in her. Listen, through her suffering. There's so much purpose in Ruth's suffering. What must have seemed to her at the time to be so Uh, so random and unjust and unfortunate, everything she's been through. And yet God is using that suffering as Ruth faithfully and patiently works through it for a purpose that would literally end up changing the world. You see, in the closing chapter of this book of Ruth, there's a genealogy. And it shows us the line of David coming from Ruth, which is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. This poor abducted, abused, unwanted, unqualified for anything good, pagan girl without a future, ends up living the most extraordinary life that ultimately leads us to Jesus Christ. You understand? That was the ultimate purpose for all of Ruth's suffering, and it is the ultimate purpose for all of your suffering as well. Your suffering is meant to point others to Christ except that's not what most of us do with our suffering because that goes against our basic human nature, which is to serve and protect and comfort ourselves first. And so instead of using our suffering to point others to Christ, we use our suffering to point others right back to ourselves. Look what's happening to me. If I only had this or that, my life would be better. If, if I didn't have this problem, my life would improve. If, if I didn't have to deal with this issue, I could serve God better. If this person wasn't mistreating me, I could really move forward in my life. Our tendency when we experience hardship or suffering in life is to turn inward, to focus on ourselves, which points others right back to us instead of using that suffering to point them to Jesus Christ. And so look, if you're struggling with something significant in your life today, ask yourself, when people talk to me about that struggle, that hardship and the suffering that comes with it, do I take those opportunities to focus on and tell others about what God is teaching me through it or the ways it is enabling me to draw closer to Him and to His people or or how as I decrease, He is increasing in my life. Does your suffering point other people to Christ or does it point them right back to you? Because listen, what your life says about Jesus Christ when you're suffering is infinitely more convicting to others than what your life says about Jesus when everything is easy. You with me? What your life says about Jesus when you're suffering, it's it's infinitely more convicting 
to other people than what your life says about Jesus when everything is easy. That's why these stories in the Bible are so convicting and so convincing. It's because of what these people did for Christ in the midst of unimaginable suffering that gets our attention, that convinces us it must be true and worthy of pursuit because anybody can say they believe in something when times are good. It's when times are hard that your metal is tested, your faith is put on display, and your testimony to the world is most powerful. Pastor and author Brian Cosby writes, under the rod of affliction, we're given unique opportunity to bear witness to the gospel's power in our lives, which effectively calls others to repent and believe. The believer's own endurance under trial serves as a shining public witness to the truth of God's word. Okay? The fact is, nowhere in our lives is our personal testimony to the work of Christ more effective in pointing people to Jesus than in the midst of our greatest suffering which is why we should never waste the opportunity to point others to him when asked about our suffering, which means resisting the natural inclination that we all have to point others back to ourselves when we suffer, okay? Look, we all know it's true. None of us wants to suffer. We all know that. I think most people also know that suffering is at times an inevitable part of living. I think we all know that you, you simply cannot avoid all suffering in your life. What is not as commonly understood, however, is the fact that you also cannot accomplish God's will for your life on this earth without suffering. Because it is, in fact, through suffering that God prepares and enables us to accomplish His plan for our lives as we grow closer to Him and His people, all the while pointing this world to Jesus Christ. You see, the, the truth is there's so much, there's so much God-given purpose in our suffering. And although we may never enjoy it, we can rejoice in it knowing that even in our times of suffering, in fact, especially in our times of suffering, first of all, God is with you. Okay, He's not trying to stop you from doing His will when you suffer. Quite the contrary. He's trying to prepare you and enable you for the next chapter of your life through that suffering as He draws you ever closer to Him and to each other so that when this world encounters you, listen, in your good times and especially in your most difficult times, all they will see is Jesus. Let's pray.